Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Nonprofit U, a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, and I'm your host. I'm a consultant to nonprofits, and I specialize in community and organizational development. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find Nonprofit U on Facebook and on Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often. Today we're using the hashtags Nonprofit U, MLK, North Lawndale, or What Has Changed. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit underscore U. The chat room is open and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account. You'll find a link to open the account on the page for this episode. You can also email me questions at consulting at ValerieFLeonard.com. We'll, we'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 20-minute mark or so. Call-in number is 347-884-8121. Today we'll be looking at the work of Dr. Martin Luther King when he was in Chicago and then we'll examine what has changed in North Lawndale since he walked among us. Again, we encourage you to call in with questions at about the 20-minute mark. You can start posting in the chat room and emailing questions now. Again, my email address is consulting at ValerieFlinner.com. And if you want to participate in the live chat, you must open an account, and the link is found on the episode page. The call-in number, again, is 347 347- 884-8121, nonprofit and community development professionals, and then especially those of you who work or live or are from North Lawndale, we're encouraging you to come and call and, and share some of your perspectives. So first of all, for those of you who don't know about North Lawndale, North Lawndale is a low-income community in Chicago, on the west side, we are approximately two and a quarter miles from Chicago's downtown area. It's an up-and-coming neighborhood. There is, you know, quite a bit of pressure, I think, you know, for gentrification, as is true for many communities that are, you know, bordering our downtown areas. So as I was preparing for today's show, I had a very short conversation with my mother. Her name is Essie Leonard. She is a retired Chicago school teacher. She lived in North Lawndale most of her adult life from 1957 until 2000. So clearly that was before I was born, right? Now seriously, uh, from 1957 until 2000, she lived there. And I was born and raised in North Lawndale. And I asked her, you know, about that time and, you know, what's different now? And, you know, one of the first things she said was, well, church attendance is way down from where it was in the 1960s. And just to put that in perspective, we have over 180 churches and attendance is way down. Um, Parents were more involved in schools with their children, she said. Schools were actually overcrowded, and we had the Willis wagons, which were really trailers that were put in the 
playgrounds because of school overcrowding. There were many more field trips. In fact, the Board of Education insisted on them, and there were more child-parent centers for early learning. And then children, uh, I'm sorry, citizens were much more engaged in civic affairs, and there were summer jobs for youth. There were shopping centers on Pulaski, Roosevelt, and Madison. We had many more bus routes, including the Ogden bus, the 16th Street bus, and the Central Park bus. And as those of you who are engaged in the fight for better public transportation, you're very much aware of those issues. And there were many more houses, and there were few, fewer vacant lots. In fact, we have over three, about half of those are vacant lots in North Lawndale. So that gives you some indication. And then when we look at the density, we're using probably about 25% of our capacity for development in that area. So we've got a big opportunity. Some might call it a problem, but it's a huge opportunity for development and reimagining the community. And I would hope that as we reimagine the community, that community citizens are, in fact, driving that process. So now that we've had some very high-level reflections from my mom and we heard me pontificate, I want to share a little background on why Dr. King came to Chicago in the first place. He came here at the urging of James Bevel and Al Raby to lead the charge for fair housing and economic development. And together, the three men led what has become known as the Chicago Freedom Movement. And this is also known as the Chicago Open Housing Movement. And they created the environment where the Contract Buyers League could be very successful in the work that they do. And as you remember, the Contract Buyers League was an organization of local residents, homeowners who fought the, the practice of uh, unscrupulous investors who were selling houses on contract and created terms such that people never actually owned the houses. They didn't give mortgages but contracts. So, again, the work that Dr. King did um, helped create an environment where this uh, was possible. So the Chicago Freedom Movement it included things like large rallies, marches, and demands to the city council in Chicago as well as the mayor. And these specific demands covered a wide range of areas besides open housing and included things like quality education, transportation and job access, income and employment, health, wealth generation, crime, and the criminal justice system, community development, tenants' rights, and quality of life. So much of the work that we're doing now has been inspired by the work that Chicago Freedom Movement has done, and they laid a very solid blueprint for us. The Chicago Freedom Movement was the most ambitious civil rights campaign in the north of the United States, and it lasted from 1965 until early 1967. So they accomplished a lot in two years, and they're largely credited with inspiring the 1968 Fair Housing Act. And during this time, King came to live in Chicago, and one of the few communities that would really accept him was North Lawndale. So we're very honored in North Lawndale to have had him live with us for about six months. 
and he lived in an apartment at 1550 South Hamlin, and he did that to demonstrate the need for decent housing. And he lived there, again, for six months in 1966. And he worshipped and spoke most often at Stone Temple Church on Douglas Boulevard and Friendship Baptist Church, and at the time Friendship Baptist was located in North Lawndale. So a number of things came out of the Chicago Freedom Movement. You know, again, they've been able to accomplish a whole lot in two years. They, and I can't go into all of it, but some of the things that they did, they really impacted the real estate boards. They made made it possible that public statements and all listings would be available on a non-discriminatory, sorry, non-discriminatory basis. And when we look at the banks and savings institutions, banks were uh, they, they they were made to make public statements of a non-discriminatory uh, uh, that word non-discriminatory mortgage policy, so that loans would be available to any qualified buyer without regard to the racial composition of the area. And then when we speak to the work with the mayor and city council. Um, they provided that the mayor and city council publish headcounts of whites, Negroes, Latin Americans for all city departments and to revoke all contracts with firms that don't have a full-scale fair employment practice. Um, they created a citizen review board for grievances against police brutality and false arrests or stops and seizures. They also demanded an ordinance giving ready access to the names and owners and investors for all slum properties. And then uh, they demanded a saturation program of increased garbage collection, street cleaning, and building inspection services for the slum property. So in a lot of ways, you know, I'm reading something that happened, you know, about 50 years ago, and it's still relevant. Today we've got a lot of work ahead of ourselves, a lot of work. And then when it comes to politics, they demanded that precinct captains be residents of their own precincts. And then uh, with the Chicago Housing Authority, they demanded a program to rehab present public housing, including such items as locked lobbies, restrooms, and recreation areas. Increase, And they also demanded a program to increase vastly the supply of low-cost housing on the scattered basis for both low- and income families. So as a result of their advocacy, we have scattered site public housing, and North Lawndale is the site of the greatest number of those project-based Section 8 housing. You know, At one point, we had as many as 1,600 units that were owned by one person. I'm not quite sure the total in the whole community, but but one entity, rather, owned 1,600 units of affordable Section 8 housing. And then on the business side, they required that basic headcounts, including, you know, white, Negro, and Latin American, by job classification and income level, be made public. And then they demanded racial steps to upgrade and integrate all departments and all levels of employment. So that laid the groundwork for affirmative action that was created under Nixon when he came to office. So when we fast forward to, say, 2007, 
at the time when I posed this question, um, people were saying things like, you know what, I, I've lived in a lot of places all over the country, and I've never, ever had to fight so hard just to live. It, it's just like the entire community is under siege. Now, that was 2007. Um, in some ways, it's worse. In some ways, it has improved. So we want to step back just a little bit and look at North Lawndale's history. Um, as you may or may not know, we were organized in 1857 as part of the Cicero Township, and we were annexed to Chicago in 1869. And the population increased from 46,000 to 112,000 between 1910 and 1930 as a result of Jewish immigration from Europe. And then the white population dropped from 87,000 in 1950 to less than 11,000 in 1960. There was a lot of white flight when blacks came to the community in 1950. And then at the same time, the black population increased from 13,000 to more than 113,000. And at our peak, North Lawndale, you know, during the time when Martin Luther King was there, we had over 120,000 residents. So it was quite a densely populated community. And, you know, again, where we are now, we have about, we're occupying about 25% of our capacity. So as I mentioned before, Martin Luther King came to the neighborhood during the 1960s, 1966. He wanted to draw attention to poor housing conditions. And then with his assassination in 1968, you know, there were a number of riots along Roosevelt Road and 16th Street, and here it is, 2017, and we have not completely recovered. You know, so he died in 1968, and within two years, 75% of the businesses were either closed or relocated. And to this day, we only have about 250 Um We used to have International Harvester. They left in 1969. We used to have Sears, and, you know, they started leaving between 1974 and 1987, you know, dismantling operations. We had Zenith, and we had Sunbeam, and they left in the 1970s. And then Western Electric, which was a huge uh, a huge building as well as um, huge enterprise. You know, they were based here. They left in the 1980s. And then our community actually bottomed out around 1995, and we've been experiencing accelerated growth between 1997 and 2007. About 2008, you know, we had, you know, between 2007 and 2008, we had a recession, and we are slowly, very slowly, trying to make our way back. So when we look at the drivers of North Lawndale Redevelopment, one of the earlier institutions was the Greater Lawndale Conservation Commission, and they were a community organization that served North Lawndale, and they were formed in 1954, and they were the liaison between North Lawndale and Chicago social service organizations. And they worked to improve local housing and schools and sponsor beautification projects in the area. And they were the precursor 
to the list quality of life planning process and the current North Lawndale Community Coordinating uh, Planning process. They guided the last comprehensive plan that was created for North Lawndale. They developed that in 1958. And one of the most noted uh, former executive directors was now Congressman Danny K. Davis. And the work that they did was done in committees, was housing, education, and welfare. And then when we look at the early 70s, the mid-80s, the major drivers of North Lawndale redevelopment were the Lawndale People's Planning and Action Council, Pyramid West, and Habitat Company. And the leaders were Cecil Butler, Michael Scott Sr., and they were responsible for very, I would say, most of the development that occurred between the 70s and the mid-90s. They brought about the Lawndale Restoration on Douglas Boulevard. That was over 1,600 properties that they restored and made made most of them Section 8. They were project-based Section 8. They created the Community Bank of Lawndale, and they also developed the Roosevelt Plaza Shopping Center and some affordable housing right across the street. And then we also had the Staines Family Foundation, and they provide venture philanthropy across major quality of life sectors, and in recent years it's been laser-focused on education and early childhood development, instrumental in the development of the Renaissance 2010 reform policies for education, and they still play a very major role in the shaping of early childhood education policy today, and they serve as a convener to attract major development in philanthropy, but in recent years, more educational resources. Another driver of the North Lawndale redevelopment was the Shaw Companies, and um, the executive, Charlie Shaw, was actually an executive with Sears. And they developed things like the Holman Square Housing Complex, Holman Square Park, um, as well as the Powerhouse High School. And they have recently redeveloped the old Sears Tower and is now called the Nichols Tower. And... Other drivers, drivers of North Lawndale redevelopment include yeah, other drivers of North Lawndale redevelopment include LISC, which is the Local Initiative Support Corporation. And about 10 years ago, they um, facilitated the local planning processes in about 17 different neighborhoods in North Lawndale was one of them. And at that time, they partnered with Lawndale Christian Development Corporation, and then they partnered also with Staines Family Foundation to advance costs for the Ogden-Pulaski TIF redevelopment plan. And today, we have the North Lawndale Community Coordinating Council. They were put together um, about uh, early 2015, April of 2015, I was one of the founding members, and they were an association or are an association of businesses, nonprofit organizations, individuals, and elected officials that have come together to coordinate 
and guide comprehensive planning. And this is the first process that actually combines capacity building for residents so that they will have an opportunity to take advantage of the opportunities that the planning process brings. And they have completed the existing conditions report and are looking to develop a comprehensive planning process, and that plan should be done within the next year. And then when we look at the demographics for North Rondale, we're down to about 38,000 people, down from 120,000 some odd people when Martin Luther King was here. And the racial makeup is now about 93% African American. And then we have Latino and white um, who are coming in. And then when we look at the number of housing units, um, in 2005, we were down about um, 8%, down to about 13,000 properties, and it's probably lower than that now because we've had a significant number of foreclosures. And then, again, the number of vacant units at that time was about 1,700 and that has gone up. You know, we have over 3,000 now, and I'm pretty sure we didn't have that many when Martin Luther King was here. I'm not quite sure what that number was. And then the number of owner-tied units, you know, in 2005, it was down to about 3,151, and I'm sure it's lower than that given, you know, the mortgage crisis that we've had and, you know, given that our population is down. So when we look at our income, about 42% of our people are living below poverty, and this was about the fourth highest in the city. And then we had about 4,800 households with, you know, incomes below 15000 So it's a relatively poor community, to, to say the least. And when we look at, you know, our ability, you know, for people to actually afford housing, you know, um, given that the median income is about $24,000, people in that income bracket can only afford houses up to about 68000 And when we talk about affordable housing in the city of Chicago, we typically tie it to the area median income, which is, you know, looking at housing in about the $150,000 range. So a lot of the so-called affordable housing is beyond our range. You know, the area median income is in the $70,000 or $80,000 range. And, you know, there's clearly a lot of gentrification pressure. We've had over 141 mortgage foreclosures between January and November of 2007. But when we look at the period between 2007 and 2015, we've had over 2,000 mortgage foreclosures. We have over 2,100 building code violations tied up in court. And just in a single action alone, we lost 1,200 affordable units when we lost the housing on Douglas Boulevard. In fact, some of that housing, you know, some of it has come back, but not all of it. 
So we're taking a serious hit on the housing front, and some residents have actually complained that their property tax bills have doubled in the last year. And then when we look at the median rent values, the median rent increased from $380 in 1990 to to about $680 to well, back in 2013, and the rents ranged from 650 to about $1,300. And 61% of our residents are paying over 40% of their annual income in rent. You know, there are serious uh, rising home values, and we've gone from $40,000 in 1990 to some homes being over $300,000 as is, you know, today. So we're, we're in serious straits, you know, as far as affordable housing concerned. And then when you talk to residents today, one resident has said, it's as if our government at all levels have put mechanisms in place to destabilize the community and remove local control. So we have unregulated predatory lenders. There's pressure to dismantle LSCs for public schools while charter schools are run by governing boards with corporate representation. In fact, only about a third of our schools are regular uh, schools, you know, two-thirds are either charters or turnaround schools or alternative schools. And we no longer have the Lawndale Conservation Council, which actually had teeth such that their decisions, you know, were lost, so to speak. Uh, right now, the North Lawndale Community Coordinating Council, they serve in an advisory council. And there's significant resistance to creation of local resident-run and controlled planning bodies. But, you know, in recent years, we body and, you know, the aldermen can work very closely together as they do their community planning. So as we look at rebuilding the community, you know, the city has what I would call a Marshall Plan to rebuild the community, and they do that through the TIFs and the NIFs and STIFs, so the TIFs is a tax increment financing district, whereas the NIFs are neighborhood improvement funds, so people can improve their properties. And as the STIFs, or small business improvement fund, that is meant for small businesses to rehab their facades. And, you know, we're doing the community planning process as well. So those are the things that are in place in North Lawndale. And as I prepare for today, ways from all of this. So I thought about how when Dr. Martin Luther King walked among us, one of the strengths of his work is that his advocacy made community planning much more impactful. Planning without advocacy is really an exercise in self-gratification and the short-term gains will be fleeting unless you can marry the advocacy with the planning. So sustained advocacy is a crucial element that's missing today in much of the work that we do. And I thank God that King, Al Raby, and James Bevel, they pushed many, many envelopes and the world is a better place because of it. 
a lot of the work that Dr. King did was plugged into the work that Al Raby and James Bevel were already doing with the Chicago Freedom Movement, which I think is very, very instructive for those of us who are engaged in community planning. They were very holistic in their approach, and they impacted policies at the national and local levels. However, one of the shortcomings of Freedom Movement is when the leaders focus their efforts on the Vietnam War, there are very few people who carry on the work in housing, transportation, and economic development. But we also have to look at the fact that that work that was done has a lasting impact. You know, again, as I said before, a lot of what they did accomplished in two years. And they were able to lay the groundwork for a number of laws regarding fair housing and affirmative action that guide policies today. So what I would recommend is that we combine comprehensive community planning with policy and advocacy and that we engage community stakeholders early and often and that we develop leadership at the grassroots level and create structures and systems to ensure long-term sustainability of the work. So I want to thank you so much for listening. Those were some of the thoughts that I had. And this brings us to the close of our episode. Um, The show will be available for download within about an hour. And be sure to tune in next week when my guest will be Jody Adler. She's the director of the Law Project. So I shall see you then. Take care. Bye-bye.